from the time that they pronounced me dead was a good 45 minutes. They cut my clothes and then they paddled my heart because my heart had stopped. And I could see people screaming and crying, but I didn't realize that was actually my physical body because I was somewhere else. The only thing that I could feel, if you could imagine absolute love and peace, there wasn't anything else to be felt. I was greeted by people I had known in the past. I'm back home again. Incredibly safe and felt at home. Welcome to Round Trip Death, everybody. And welcome. This is going to be really fun today. We have Dr. Lottie Valentine with us today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you for so much for having me. I'm good. And it was fun. I was asking you about the pronunciation of your name. Why don't you tell us where you're from and maybe that will explain a little bit. Yeah, so my name is Valentine or Valentine. It can actually be pronounced in two different ways. And that's because I was born and raised in Sweden, which is in Northern Europe, all the way up by the North Pole, Scandinavia. Everybody gets it confused with Switzerland, but it's Sweden. So think Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, up in that area. And in Sweden, Valentine's Day is spelled like my name. It doesn't have an E on the end. And because if you put an E on Valentine, you wouldn't be able to pronounce it in Swedish. So the names change, right, with every with every country, uh, depending on the language that's spoken. And so as soon as you leave Sweden, people are going to pronounce your name in English, which is Valentine, even though it doesn't have an E on the end. As a child, uh, you go to Spain a lot because that's like living in New York, going to Florida, trying to escape that winter climate. And then they would always say, you know, uh, Valentino, Senorita Valentino. So now, now they add an O. So anyway, so that's why people get confused about, you know, is it Valentine? Is it Val Valentin? Is it Valentine? But it's actually pronounced Valentine or Valentine. I'm going to stick with Dr. Lottie. How's that? <laughs> Make it easy. Now, we have a lot of listeners in Sweden. So do you want to say hi to them in Swedish? Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey, allihopa där hemma i Sverige. Jag växte upp i Sverige och flyttade till Amerika när jag var 21. Så jag och min familj är fortfarande i Stockholmsområdet i Sverige. Och många gamla vänner. Så om ni lyssnar, hej på er alla. I have one question about Sweden and then we're going to move on, I promise. My son spent a couple of years in Norway doing a church mission. And he said the Norwegians make fun of the Swedes. Is it also the other way around in Sweden? Do they make fun of the Norwegians? Yes, all the time. It is just, you know, it's just an old joke, you know, from hundreds of years ago. It's just like people have jokes about the Polish people in New York or Italians, right? It's the same Sweden and Norway are neighbors. And so there's always jokes about how the Swedes are so much better than the Norwegians. And then, of course, it's the same joke in Norwegian about the Swedes. But it is, a, you know, it's not an, any ill meanings or anything. It's just, you know, funny. Good fun. Like teasing your little brother. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about, more about you, including what kind of doctor are you? Uh, so I'm an NMD. And so there's an N uh, in front of the MD part, which means that I'm a naturopathic medical doctor. And depending on where you live in the United States, the licensing procedure is still ongoing in the United States. So about half of the states, uh, if you are an NMD, so about 25 states uh, in the United States have uh, treats and naturopathic medical doctors as a physician because we did go to medical school and we did pass our boards just like a regular MD. 
but it's the the issue that we used to have with the chiropractic physicians the, before they became accepted. And now it's that same movement about naturopathic medical doctors. And the difference of an MD and a naturopathic medical doctor is that a naturopathic medical doctor also studies botanical medicine, acupuncture, homeopathy, nutrition. And then, of course, we all studied the pharmaceutical uh, medicines. We we actually have had a few hours more than the regular MDs because we have to be more aware of the interaction. So it's just a more holistic approach to how we treat the body versus when you go to the MD, it's more of a traditional Western approach. You go to a naturopathic doctor, they may say, well, pharmaceuticals is your best option for this, you know, for this condition. But in other conditions, it might be a botanical medicine or homeopathy or acupuncture. So your tool bag is just bigger uh, how to treat somebody. So it's a more of a holistic approach to treatment. And then you have the functional medicine doctors that are on the wagon, you know, kind of saying, I wish I had more knowledge about the integrative medicine. And so they become functional medicine doctors. So they're kind of in between the regular MD and the naturopathic doctor. Okay. That sounds great. And you live in Phoenix? Yep. I live in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I know you've had a couple of near-death experiences. I've heard nothing about them yet. I'm going to be as surprised as anybody. Can you tell us about the first one? Sure. So my first near-death experience was in 1992. Uh, I was giving birth to my third child. I had already given birth to my two boys that were now six and three and a half. So the birth itself is kind of interesting. So we we head to the hospital because my second boy was born literally in two hours. It was such a fast labor. So I had a contraction at like two in the morning. We headed straight to the hospital. We get there. I'm in labor. And I'm on this table in the birthing room and a 7.4 earthquake hits. So everything, you know, shook a lot. And this hospital was built on rollers. So it was a fairly new hospital. I lived in California at the time. And so it was in Eastern Anaheim. So for people who are familiar with California, if you've ever been to Disneyland, Disneyland is in Anaheim. So if you go all the way to the eastern part of Anaheim, you now you're bordering more on the desert and this earthquake was luckily centered in the desert. And that's why we, there wasn't much damage. But this hospital was built literally on the edge to the desert. So we were really close to the epicenter of the earthquake. Everybody started leaning over me on the table. My husband, the nurses, the midwife. If they had not leaned over me on the table, they would have fallen down because it shook that much. And I would have flown off the table. So during this earthquake, there, there's these windows, floor to ceiling windows, and I'm lying on this table and I'm thinking, this is it. We're going to all get buried in rubble. Those ceiling tiles are going to cave in. Those windows are going to shatter. You know, all the instruments, you know, in the hospital, they have those metal trays with all the instruments. Mm -hmm. They were levitating, jumping up and down on these trays. It was like cling, clang. We lost all the power. All the lights went out. That was one of the times in my life when I thought I was going to die. And that experience is very different from my near-death experience, which comes in a little bit. Because when you're in a situation like that, and I bet a lot of listeners have been almost in a car accident, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. This is it. I'm going to die. And anyway, the, the earthquake stopped. My labor also stopped because it was that a, a traumatic event. So... If you're giving birth in the jungle and the lion comes, you're going to stop giving birth, get yourself to safety, and then give birth when the lion is not there. It's when 
you're in a situation like that, everything will just stop because your your body is more interested in saving your life right now. Uh, my labor stopped. And then, you know, after half an hour, an hour, my labor started again. I gave birth to my daughter. And then they finally, we still only have a nightlight, like the, the generator in the hospital kicked in. So we have like a nightlight in this birthing suite. And we have another earthquake hit, a 7.2 earthquake. This poor man that was drawing my blood, his eyes were like golf balls because he, he had been further away from the first earthquake. So to him, this earthquake was worse because he was not much closer to the epicenter. And we're all saying, oh, don't worry, this one is a small one. And it was a 7.2. So it was still a really big earthquake, right? And then they finally give me the baby because all this is happening. And as soon as they give me the baby, I start screaming and arching backwards saying, take the baby, take the baby. And I started hemorrhaging. So that now they come, the nurses and the midwives, they are uh, squeezing my abdomen and trying to make all the blood clots come out, put me on an IV drip. It's not like they were going to take me to surgery because we were running on generators, right? The whole hospital was just trying to make sure everybody on life support is still alive. So they put me on IV drop, kept me for another two days. Finally sent me home and said, all right, seems like the bleeding has stopped and you're good to go. Well, 10 days later, I went to my friends were having a baby shower for me because I had a, a daughter uh, and I had two boys before. So they were all excited to give me, you know, pink dresses and all those things. So I get to the park and I feel like I need to use the restroom. So I take my kids with me. We go to the restroom and this enormous blood clot comes out, like larger than a than a man's large fists, right? Very large. And I run back to my friend and I said, something is really wrong. And I had had this pain. So I would constantly have to sit down to relieve the pain. It was like shooting down from my pelvic area, down my legs, almost feeling like, imagine putting a bowling ball in your stomach and how much pressure that would put. So it was that kind of a feeling. And I was thinking, what is the difference with this birth? Why am I having so much pain? So then I, I had this huge blood clot put my kids back in the car, drive home. My husband comes home from work, takes me to the hospital. And my parents are luckily visiting from Sweden at this time. So we go to the hospital, they do a manual inspection and they say, oh, everything looks good. They keep me there for two hours and they say, well, it could have been a second lining that came out and they send me on my way. I go home, next day I hemorrhage again. And it's in the evening, my husband calls the hospital and I'm yelling to him, I'm not going back. They're not going to do anything because the bleeding stopped. So they said, all right, see the doctor the, the next day. And we lived in Huntington Beach, California at the time. I see the doctor the next morning, Friday morning, same thing, manual inspection, no blood work, no ultrasound, nothing. He says, oh, it could have been a second lining that came out. I'm thinking like two linings, like this is so weird. And I'm 34 at the time, young, look very healthy. You know, it's, it's, it's in June, we're all tanned, living in California. I was the picture of health. I had just studied nutrition. I was eating healthy. And he says, all right, well, I'm going to send you home. Then the next, that, that afternoon, same day, I hemorrhage again. So we go back to the ER. So now I've hemorrhaged three times, right? So they said, all right, well, we're going to do an inspection again, manual inspection. No blood work, no ultrasound inspection, leave you on the table. So here I'm lying on this table in the ER and I finally start bleeding. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, finally, I'm bleeding. I'm in the ER. They're going to figure out something is wrong. So I'm lying. I'm not thinking much of it. I've been bleeding for three days. I think the spirit world sent the nurse to check on me because the timing is literally divine. 
So this nurse comes to check on me. She opens the door. I don't even have a bell to ring. I'm just lying in this ER on this table. And she sees all the blood that's on the table and, you know, all the paper on the table. And her jaw just drops. I mean, the, the, the look on her face is just fear and horror. And I hear the call on the loudspeaker. OBGYN, stat to the ER. OBGYN, stat to the ER. And all I'm thinking is, thank gosh, you know, they finally figured out something is wrong. Within 30 seconds, this middle-aged doctor runs in full speed, just literally out of breath. He probably ran across the hospital. Younger physician in tow. Again, a manual inspection. First, he says, how much have you been bleeding? He sees all the pa bloody papers in the wastebasket because the nurse had tried to clean everything up. So I told him, this is, you know, started Wednesday. I've been, this is my third day. And he said, all right, let's take a look. And they did a manual visual inspection again. And as they do that inspection, one of those huge blood clots comes out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, that doctor. <laughs> right? I'm just thinking, oh, my God, thank God I'm in the ER this time. I mean, if I, if I hadn't yeah. been, I would have died, right? So it's, everything is such divine timing. So I'm trying to sit up and tell him, I don't feel too good because now, it's, you know, I've hemorrhaged. This is the fifth time I'm hemorrhaging these large clots in three days. So I try to sit up and he knows now exactly what's going on because he saw the size of that blood clot come out. And I told him I've been hemorrhaging for three days. So he just pushes me back down on the table and my eyes are now closed because I can't keep them open. And I hear this, the room fill with hospital staff. And I got this nurse on my right that's quoting to put on the blood pressure cuff and she's quoting my blood pressure. And I got a nurse on my left that's trying to put an IV in my arm. But, you know, my veins are already collapsing because now I'm going into shock. And so it's really difficult to get an IV in or stick a needle in a vein that's collapsing, which is why when you go to the ER now, sometimes they just give you an IV and you're thinking, I don't need an IV. I'm here for something else. Well, if something goes south and they need to inject you with medication, they now have an access to that. They have a port. It's already in your vein. So they don't run into this problem. But in 1992, I don't think that that was probably not a standard procedure. So here I am lying on this table and I feel like I'm just falling. Imagine jumping out of an airplane and you're just without the parachute and you're just free falling down to earth. That was the feeling I had. And it's probably my blood pressure plummeting at that point. And the nurse on my right, who's quoting my blood pressure, so yells out in this panic voice, 50 over 15, hurry, she yells. So at this point, you know, I barely have pressure to support my heartbeat. That usually goes around, way around like 60 over 20. And I'm thinking, what's taking her so long? Why can't she get that IV? I don't have any medical knowledge. It's shortly after that nurse yells out 50 over 15, hurry that I know that I am dying. And that experience was very, very different from that earthquake when I thought I was going to die because at this point I knew. And I could feel my soul like starting to separate and like coming out of my body, like there was this separation happening. And all I'm thinking, I'm a complete atheist at the time. I don't believe in anything, even though I was raised in Sweden and everybody was Lutheran back then because the state and the church had not yet separated. And so you were born in Sweden, you were automatically a Lutheran. And if you didn't want to be a Lutheran, then you had to tell someone. And it was this, the church that kept your passport and counted all the people and all that. So I was confirmed when I was 14. Um, 
but I did not believe in anything they taught me. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in any of the stories or religion or, or the afterlife or the spirit world or uh, that your spirit survives the death of your body. It, I didn't believe in any of it. And can I just clarify one quick thing Yeah. before we move on? Based on something that you mentioned a second ago, this is prior to you becoming a doctor. Yeah. So you don't have all the medical knowledge back then that you do now. Yeah. No, I was only 34 at the time. And so I had studied nutrition, so I knew knew nutrition. So I was really healthy going into this ordeal. And so my friends were always saying, you only you only survived because you were so healthy going into this ordeal. And there might be some truth, you know, to that. But here I am on this table and my soul is trying to separate from my body and I'm completely aware of the fact that I'm dying and I'm a complete atheist. So what do I do at this point? I said, well, if there is a God or if there is something out there, this is my only hope. So I pray to God to save my life. And I say, I have three children under the age of six. They need a mother, right? And I was just thinking, my husband can never do this. <laughs> He's never going to be able to raise these three kids. My kids need a mom. They need, I have to be there for them. And shortly after that, I just got sucked out of my body. And that transition of being in your body and being outside your body, it happens so quickly. I don't, there's no words to describe how quickly that transition happens because, you know, people ask me, did you leave through your chest? Did you leave through the crown of your head? Or, you know, where was that exit point? No idea. Because you, I'm in my body and then I'm not. It's just, it's, the transition is too quick. You have no idea what happens. So then I find myself floating outside my body. I'm like a couple of feet up in the air. And there is this, well, number one, there is this no, there is complete peace on the other side and, you know, unconditional love and peace. And you just feel like, wow, like this, there's no pain or anything. You're just there. But my first thought was, how can I be outside my body and still be me? How does this work? Then I also was aware that there was no time on the other side and that I had access to past, present, and future, there was no, there was no time. The time only exists when I'm in my body in the, in this earthly dimension, but time doesn't exist on the other side. And I was aware that I belonged to the body. So if you step outside your car or if you step outside your house, you know, that's your car, you know, that's your house. It was that kind of feeling like I live in that body down there, but the me who I am is in this spirit form. And then I get sucked back into my body as quickly as I had left my body. So then they keep me in the hospital. And then that next day, I'm still trying to comprehend, you know, how could I be outside my body? What was that? Was that the lack of oxygen in my brain? And I'm trying to figure out why that could be. You know, my dad was a physician. My mom worked in the hospital. I was, I was always around medicine. So I'm trying to make it logical. A atheists all do this. <laughs> They, they try to justify, rationalize, explain away the whole thing. Right. It's, it, you know, you're trying to figure out what, what that was. And this nurse that came in the next day to check on me, I think she was Norwegian. Uh-oh. That's a problem. <laughs> Sorry. Did, go ahead. Did anything unusual happen yesterday? Because she was probably aware of near-death experiences. I had never heard of such a thing, didn't know anything about it. I figured, well, if I tell her, then they're going to lock me up in the psych ward. So I said, no, no, nothing, nothing happened. But also that day, I was aware of my sister-in-law 
in the left corner of my hospital room ceiling. And she said, everything is going to be okay. I'm thinking, okay, so yesterday, I think I left my body. Today, I think I hear my sister-in-law who passed away 10 days ago, and she's in this room. Like, what is happening, you know, to me? And it was it was a scary thing at the same time, because I'm trying to make sense of what what is happening, because I had no belief in anything spiritual. You've got to let me ask some questions here. Yeah. <laughs> it's my show. Come on. You You really went quickly, kind of glossed over the fact that you felt unconditional love and peace. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to explain more and try to dive into that. What did that really feel like? Um, I can't wait to get to the second end of you because it's so different from my first. <laughs> so it's almost like, because the first near-death experience was really short. I didn't get to see the light, which I did in my second near-death experience and meeting spirit guides and everything. The first one was so short. It was like, I always feel like they saved me too quickly and now I have to have a second near-death experience to really get me on track what I'm here to do in, in this life, right? Because I didn't have that full effect. But you did feel something. Yes, but I still knew because when you're in that state, when you're outside your body, number one, there's, there's no pain in dying because it's just a beautiful experience. It's nothing, you know, to be afraid of. Death is a beautiful thing where... One second you're in your body and the next second you're not. But that that feeling of it's just such it's just tremendous peace and, and love. You just feel like you're held in, uh, like for lack of a better word, like in the source or God, whatever you want to call that, you know, like you're just held as an infant and, and cuddled. You just, um, this unconditional love uh, feeling, you're, it's hard to like put words to it, but it's... It's the most tremendous calm and peace and love that you could imagine. So for people who are meditating, ask for divine source or God or whatever you believe in, spirit guides to give you that peace and love when you meditate and you start to feel, get a sense of what that feels like because it's your your whole body, you know, just feels what in this realm, right? In the earthly realm, we can feel that love, uh, feels our body when we're meditating, and I'm sure other people can can get to this place too. Yes, there's, you know, you're not stuck with these earthly dimensions of feelings because it's just unconditional love on the other side. It's just peace. Okay. I'll let you go on to experience number two now. Right. So then I guess so then there's all these other things that happen in between. My watch has stopped. I had all this electrical interference. It took me 12 years to have a watch tick for 12 years. So that's, we can go into those stories later. So let me uh, just talk about, you know, and and how the spirit world started talking to me during this uh, period. So my second ND, so I was really sick afterwards and I had something called bone marrow suppression. And so the first thing the doctor said is, I have to give you a blood transfusion. You've lost way too much blood. And I turned my head slightly to look at the doctor and he yells, don't, don't move. Because he was so afraid I was going to go back in to, to this you know, he was going to lose me after he injected me with all who knows what. I just remember just lots of injections. When he saved me and he injected me with all these things, he said, you're not going to feel too good for a while. And I, he said, I have to give you a blood transfusion. And I said, do you have to give me a blood transfusion? And he said, do you have religious beliefs that prevent you from getting a blood transfusion? And I said, no, but I have three children under the age of six. And this was 1992. And a lot of people back then that got blood transfusions ended up getting AIDS because we did not have 
any way of checking the blood back then. And so he said, he understood my concern. And he said, well, you are like a young and healthy person. So let's see how quickly you make blood. So the two days in the hospital, they, you know, they kept monitoring uh, my blood and how quickly I made blood. They ended up not giving me blood saying, okay, we're going to give you all these different supplements. You're not going to feel too good for a couple of months because it's going to take you some time to uh, make blood enough that you don't feel dizzy. So I pretty much slept for two or three months. I have very few memories of July and August. It was almost September. My parents changed their tickets back to Sweden two or three times. They just kept having to stay longer because I couldn't be up yet. And I just remember my hands and feet being ice cold. I was under you know, wool blankets in, in June or July in, in California. So I had no blood in my body and my head was pounding and I kept having to take it off the pillow because I would feel faint. And so finally, by September, I'm now sitting up and I was sitting in the rocking chair. Um, and then my mother-in-law came to help. And then at Christmas, we all got the flu and we ended up not having any insurance for that entire year because as all this happens, my husband was a regional manager and his company got sold. And so everybody got laid off from top to bottom, right? Of course, in the middle of all this. So he takes the first best job because he's got support, his wife and his three kids at home. So we were on that three month wait period to get insurance. We couldn't afford to pay the COBRA payment. So after three months, he gets another job offer, which is better than his, the job he's in. So he takes that job. And after three months, he gets another job offer. So we ended up not having insurance until the following year, July 1st. So that whole year, we didn't have insurance. And we all got sick at Christmas. And we went to the walk-in clinic. Everybody got antibiotics. Everybody had pneumonia. The boys had pneumonia. My husband had pneumonia. I had pneumonia. And... After eight days in antibiotic, everybody was well, except for me. I was even sicker. So I go back to this walking clinic. They take my blood. They come back in the room and they say, do you have AIDS or leukemia? Because you have no immune system. And I said, well, I, I can't have AIDS because they never gave me the blood transfusion because that was the concern. And they said, well, you have to go to the ER because you have no immune system. You have no white blood cells. And I said, I can't do that because... We don't have medical insurance and, you know, we're going to get medical insurance soon. Anyway, they sent me home with all these antibiotics. They injected me with all this stuff again. They called the next day and said, you know, are you doing better? And I said, yes. It took me, you know, another couple of weeks, but I finally came out of that. And then I started bruising and I would, I had a bruise on my hip that spanned my entire hip area. So I bumped into the baby's changing table, something that would give you a bruise the size of a small coin. I had a bruise that spanned my entire hip. It was purple and red. And now it's May. My baby is now 11 months old. So it's almost a year later. I put the kids in the car. I drive myself to the doctor. He sees the big bruise and he, he thinks that my husband is beating us. So then he rips off the shirts on all my kids. He realizes there's no bruises on them. And I'm, I'm, tell, I'm telling him, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> this is what happened to me. And the, I bumped into the baby's changing table. So then he believed me and I said, look, my dad is a doctor. I understand there's something wrong with my blood, but we're getting insurance July 1st. And we were in mid-May now. So it's like six weeks to go. I've survived this whole year. And I said, as funny as this sounds, I'm better now than I have been the whole year because I put my children in the car and drove myself here and walked into this clinic. I'm getting better, but obviously there's something wrong. Anyway, he gave me all the lab work, which I didn't do um, because I knew that I would have a pre-existing condition and then I wasn't going to get insurance. And I said, well, I've gotten out of all these problems the entire year. 
So I just ripped them up and I luckily got better. During this whole time, I have visitations from the spirit world. I'm here in the spirit world. But then another year goes by. So now two years later, in 1994, I am living with this bone marrow suppression and uh, always having this feeling of my soul leaving, just like it did in the ER that first time, where you just feel like your soul is separating from your body. So um, this is just my normal life at this point. Every time I stand up, every time I bend over, uh, lying in bed at night, I have to take my head off the pillow um, because my head is pounding because I don't have enough blood. So my second NDE happens in the middle of the night. I wake up, my head is pounding, and I take my head off the pillow. And just like the first time, I just get sucked out of my body. But the second experience is so different from the first because now I am tumbling through darkness. Think like a spaceship traveling uh, in Star Wars, right? So I'm traveling through darkness, like tumbling. And I get to this place that I call the mid-station because I knew that there were it was like an awareness that I could be higher or I could be lower. So imagine going into a skyscraper and there is a hundred floors in the skyscraper and you push the button on the 50th floor. When you get off on the 50th floor, you know there's floors above you, you know there's floors below you. You just don't know what's on those floors because you can't see them. But that was the feeling that there was like levels. And I call it the bouncing station because they sent me back. I did not get a choice to stay. Like some people say, oh, I had a choice. I could stay. There was no choice. So I get to this mid-station, and the first thing I hear is the most beautiful music. And I'm thinking, where is this music coming from? And I look to my right, and for all the people in Sweden, what I see is a log cabin. So I'm thinking, well, the music must be coming from this log cabin. So I open the door, I look inside, and it looks like, it literally looks like a, a sauna, like a Swedish sauna, a small log cabin. And I open the door, I look inside, but it's empty. And I, I look to my left and I see a mirror image of the log cabin on my left. I open the door, I look inside, but it's empty. But then I'm thinking, you know, where is this? The music is so beautiful. It's more beautiful than any music you can make here on earth. I tried to make that music. We had a synthesizer with like 200 sounds. There was not one sound on the synthesizer that I could make similar to, the, to the, this beautiful music. So then as I'm in this state, I become aware of this bright white light. It's almost like I was standing, the way I would say, it's like you're standing inside a cloud and then somebody's shining one of those really bright spotlights that they have at like a soccer game or, you know, like a sports arena. And so it's, I'm surrounded by this bright white light. I'm standing in it, almost like you're standing in a cloud or standing in a fog. But this bright white light, it extends everywhere. But this bright white light, there is a knowing that this bright white light is God. It is divine source that we come from this light. So there was this knowing we come from this light. We are part of this light and we carry this light within us. And we come and we return to this light when we when we die. And that light is that is the unconditional love, bliss you would never want to leave this light. Like if you could stay there, if I had said, do you want to stay? I would say, yes, <laughs> yes, please. Right. Because it's just this enormous love and, 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 and bliss feeling in this light. I see an outline of angels and the music is coming from the angels, but I am completely aware of the fact that I'm seeing angels and 
thinking, I don't believe in angels. Like, why am I seeing angels? You know, these things aren't supposed to exist because I'm still me in this condition, right? I'm still me. I'm still the person I am here on earth. Like, I'm still my same spirit. I'm still thinking this can't be. Angels aren't real. But here I am see, hearing the angels as creating this beautiful music. And then I become aware of these two spirit guides. And they're talking to each other, but I can hear them. And the spirit guide on my right says to the one diagonally in front of me to the left, what is she doing here? She can't be here. She has to go back. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Wait a second. How can this be? How can I be outside my body and still be me? Right? It's been two years now of me trying to come to terms with my first near-death experience. And the spirit guide diagonally to the left in front of me says, well, if I told you, you won't, you wouldn't remember. So I would say there's some kind of like control mechanism of what we get to remember. But then it's like I'm standing on the moon, looking down on the earth. And around the earth, there is this, what I called at the time, because this is 1994, a silvery glittery fishnet. Because we didn't have the internet back then. You couldn't Google, you know, grid around the earth. <laughs> I spent years combing the San Francisco Public Library trying to find what was that that I saw. So I call it the fishnet only because I was raised in Sweden. And in the summers, I spent my time on an island without electricity or running water. And I would row the boat for my grandmother who laid fishnets in the ocean to catch fish for the family. And when she lifted those fishnets out in the early morning sun, the water droplets on that fishnet would sparkle in the sunlight. So that was my de description of what I saw was like, it looked like a fishnet that was sort of sparkling. And the spirit guide said, everything on earth is connected to each other, but everything on earth is connected up to this grid. And with that message, I got sent back to earth, which has then, you know, taken me 29, 30 years to put these experiences, understanding what the meaning of, of these experiences were. But now in my work today, where I work as an ancestral healer, I work as a medical medium, I'm an evidential psychic medium, I do spirit uh, readings for people as well. Now I understand it. But it took a long time to understand what is that interconnectedness. It's like I had to wait for quantum physics <laughs> to catch up and the internet to catch up. I searched for years. I used to have stacks of books next to my bed. I was reading, you know, Stephen Hawking, Time, the physics books. Why is there no time on the other side? Somebody please explain these experiences. What is that grid? And then eventually I said, okay, that's it. I'm just going to give up on, on this and, and let it be. I'm sure you have questions by now. <laughs> oh, this is just really cool. It's been fun to listen to. What do you make of all this? I mean, really, what? how did this settle with you and change you internally? Right. So exactly. So it's not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you, right? People who are familiar with Gabor Mate and his trauma healing have heard him say that. But it applies so well to people who have near-death experiences because when we listen to somebody's experience, we are looking for uh, confirmation or knowing that, you know, life goes on, our loved ones in the spirit world are okay, you're going to be okay when you pass on. But we, you know, we're kind of stuck in that phase and we're fascinated by these stories because that's where we are in our conscious evolution right now. But then when you look at what happens to these people as a result of those, those experiences. So for me, 
it was a complete life transformation. And that's why I always joke, they saved me too quickly the first time. And so they had to give me a second near-death experience so they could put me on the right track for this life. Growing up in Sweden, where my father was a physician and my mom were, was a hospital floor administrator, I was always surrounded by medicine. And ever as long back as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. Just like my dad, I wanted to be a doctor. But back then, you know, I was born 1958, so I was raised in the 1960s. Typically back then, the women became nurses and the men became doctors. And my dad would always say, you know, be a nurse, be a nurse. It doesn't take, it take us long. And I ended up not going that route. I was a business major, computer science major. I was a programmer and systems analyst working for IBM in my, you know, after college in the United States. So I went with that very logical route. So here I am you know, after these experiences and I always feel like the spirit world said, all right, you're on the wrong track. <laughs> We've got we to put you back on the healing track. That's what you incarnated to be. That's what you wanted to be as a child. But then, you know, life sometimes takes you in a different direction. I, I knew I had to be a healer or a doctor. For 12 years now, I have heard the spirit world. The spirit world would come and visit me. So it started the first day after my first near-death experience. I heard my sister-in-law. And then a year later, my uncle passed away and he came to visit in the middle of the night. And I figured my mom was going to call me from Sweden the next day and say, hey, you know, my brother passed away. Nobody called me. So I said, wow, this is so strange. I know he was here. He said, you know, just letting you know that I passed on. Another day goes by. And then finally, uh, this was the night, like uh, Sunday to Monday. Finally, on Wednesday, my mom calls. You know, she does her usual chit chat. How is things going? And then she says, I have something tragic to share with you. And I said, I know your brother passed away, you know, two days ago. And it was just dead silence. And I said, she said, how did you know? And I said, he was here. He, you know, he came and, and told me. My mom's response at that point was, was, you're just like your grandma, just like her mother, because she also knew when people passed away. And so that's how it started. But the spirit world would tell me um, all these things. So when my kids were a little older. It's always fun to tell the things that you are very, you know, that are verifiable. So one morning I woke up and I had three images. The first image was of our van and it was a black scratch on the side of the door. And the second image is I see two of my kids in the car, my middle son in the front seat, my daughter in the back seat. And then the third image is me leaving a note on the windshield of a black sedan car, but I don't see any people. So I tell my kids, we live in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and they go to school in the city. Uh, so I had to drive them to the city. They were at the ba uh, San Francisco Ballet School. And that's like a, the big whoop to do. It's like a training for the Olympics kind of thing. They train them six days a week. So I'm driving them to the city because they're too young to take the subway by themselves at that age. And so I tell my kids, this is what I saw. And we go through all the intersections. So we know the scratch is on the right-hand side of the door. It's the sliding door on the van. So we must be hit oncoming traffic. We're turning left oncoming traffic. It's the only way we can get hit. Two weeks go by and we figure out there's only one intersection in the city because a lot of the streets in San Francisco are one way. We come across the bridge into San Francisco. We get off the freeway. We come down to the light. We jog left only street that has oncoming traffic. So every day for two weeks, my kids' noses are pressed up against the wind, their window saying, mom, the coast is clear. There's no cars coming because they're concerned too. They're going to be in this accident, right? Mom saw the scratch on the car. So two weeks go by, nothing. Then we're uh, in Walnut Creek, East Bay, San Francisco. And at the bookstore, we come out of the bookstore 
And there's this big truck in the way. He's offloading all these you know, boxes. And I'm trying to get on the street. And as I'm turning right onto the street, the right part of my car scrapes the car that's parked. And it's a black sedan car. So I or now I know, right? This is the scratch. So I get out of my car. I walk around the car. I see the black scratch. And I just you know, raise my hands to the sky and just laugh. I'm sure the people who saw me must have thought this woman is absolutely nuts. Wouldn't be the first time you look crazy. <laughs> right. And so here I am leaving the note on the black sedan car. So I, you know, all these things were happening and I started hearing things, seeing things, knowing things here in the spirit world. And after 12 years of this and writing things down, because I, I thought this is just a deja vu. I'm so skeptical. I'm so, so scientific. And I, I needed proof over and over again that what I was experiencing was real and it wasn't coming from my brain. And so I would, anything that happened or I, I saw things in a dream or in a meditation or I would just know things, I would write it down because it was a way for me to verify that information. So after 12 years of this, I am thinking, okay, I need to go back to work soon, but I, don't, I can't go back to programming. I want to do something in healing. So I come across this medical school on the internet, naturopathic medical school. And then I realized it's a real medical school. It wasn't just something you could do in a year. I was like, four years of medical school, there's not even any guarantee I'm going to get in. I'm going to have to take all the prereqs, the chemistry, the bio, the physics. And then, you know, after finishing all of that, there's no guarantee they're going to accept me because I'm going to be so much older. Well, I, I closed the computer, walked to the kitchen. Now my kids are old enough. So they're in San Francisco, you know, they're taking the subway. And as I'm walking to the kitchen, the spirit world drops in on me. But now it's been 12 years of me listening to the spirit world. And every message I have received in 12 years have been accurate. So at this point, I, I'm trusting what I'm receiving. So the spirit world drops in and says, you have to go to naturopathic medical school. You have to be a doctor. And... They said, uh, you have to combine East and West, which is like combining old and new. They said, you have to write two books. No, wait, three. <laughs> and you have to bring messages to people. And I'm like, what am I supposed to write about? What are you talking about messages? What do you mean messages? And the spirit world answer was just, when the time is right, we will let you know. For now, just go and enroll in the prereqs. Literally in two weeks, I was already taking my prereqs. And because I was a business and computer science major as an undergraduate, I didn't have any of the like high school advanced placement biology and all that. I had to start with advanced placement high school biology at the community college and then get to the prereqs of biology, chemistry, organic chemistry and physics. So I had to take all those classes. And so that is how I ended up on, you know, going to medical school. And I went to, I was accepted and went into medical school at the age of 54. Congratulations. So everybody out there, it's never too late to transform your life and, and follow and follow that calling. But that message of you're to write two books, no wait three. I have gotten that exact message with the, that exact phrasing four times from two professional mediums at Arthur Finley College in England, which is the top mediums in the world. And two other times, one from a student and one from a friend who, is, who I met who was also a medium. And the message is always the same. You're to write two books, no wait three. That's so interesting. So I'm always saying, you know, why is, why is that? That extra one is going to be different, I feel, than the, the first two. So I've written my first book, which is all about uh, helping people uh, transform their life and follow their own calling and, and sharing a lot of my own stories of 
how the mediumship developed and the spirituality developed for me to help people develop their own spirituality. Yeah. So let's do this. We're going to spend some time talking about some of those spiritual things, or as I like to call them, spiritual gifts, because a lot of people after their NDEs have some kind of spiritual gift or gifts that they did not have before. Before we move on to that, though, you had been an atheist. Are you still an atheist? How has this changed your belief? You obviously believe there's something after this life. My belief now, so we are eternal beings. We don't, you know, we don't die. The body dies, just like if you're in a car crash, your car died, you go get another new car. Your body dies, you come back in a new body. <laughs> so it's that uh, reincarnation and the spirit world, you know, when we leave this body, we go on to the spirit world. And I think eventually we reincarnate and we come back in another, in another body, in another life. I, my beliefs now is, of course, in the spirit world, we are spiritual beings and in divine source, there is something out there that is of greater consciousness uh, than we are. And we are created in that liking. Okay. I'm going to ask you to speculate on something. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were not given a choice on whether to go back or not. You were just told you're going back. Some people do have a choice. So in your opinion, why do you think some have a choice and some don't? I think it's just the incarnation that, you know, that because I've heard, I've, I met somebody once at a, like a IANTS meeting, International Association for Near Death Studies. And he said he had three outs. He was told that he had three outs. And this was one of his outs. And he could have stayed if he wanted to. It's like he had a choice. You can go back and you can have this life and I'll look at all the fun things that are going to happen. Or you can stay if you want. This is one of your outs. I didn't have a choice. I feel like to a certain extent, we write a little movie script for what we're here to experience. And they were like, you can't stay because you have way too much to fulfill in this life. You got to go back and, and fulfill your incarnation. So I feel like there is some sort of soul contract that we have about our journey here on earth, because a lot of things that happen to us are in our astrological charts right? We can see things, uh, major things that are happening in those charts. So that's almost like your movie script in a certain sense. Believe it or not, there is a lot, lot more to come from Dr. Lottie, but we're going to put that in a part two of this episode and release that later this week. So I hope you'll come back and listen to the rest. We're going to find out about her spiritual gifts, why her watches didn't work for 12 years, and a whole lot more. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next.